First You Think is a not-for-profit ministry of the First Unitarian Church of Des Moines. Support us at ucdsm.org today. When I asked my friend how I should make a speech for Earth Day, he said, you should plan it. And although I was not very amused, I knew what he meant because of the importance of this topic. As the theme of this service is Earth Day and adaptability, it would be very fitting for me to talk about how the youth of today will fix everything. Last year, the people who heard my coming of age speech heard me talk about how the future generations and I should try our best to conserve the planet by supporting well-grown food. There are also new inventions, new policies, new attitudes, and new outlooks on life. These are all things that can be talked about because of the disastrous situation. However, what isn't often talked about is how strong and resilient the Earth has been. The fragile aspect of the Earth is constantly over, has constantly overshadowed the true strength because of our frequent carelessness and harmful views of others. I have thought time and time again about how strong the Earth really is. Every Earth Day, I commonly hear people say, the Earth is weakening. Although, what does this actually mean? The Earth being fragile is such a loose term that can't accurately describe the situation. Some people would say that fragile means easily destroyed. But how easy is that? How is the destruction happening? There are so many problems with this definition because it isn't black and white. There is so much more going on. With that being said, we can agree that in some ways, our Earth is currently being destroyed. Whether that method to destroy our fragile planet is littering, polluting the air, deforestation, or anything else, it still, is, it still isn't very clear. It hasn't been easy to deforest. It hasn't been easy to mass produce food. And it certainly hasn't been easy to have a population of 8 billion to destroy the Earth. So when people say the Earth is fragile, you should always think about whether their definition of fragile actually fits. On the other hand, how strong is the Earth? That is hard to determine when we are actively pushing the limits of what it can handle. However, certain strengths of the Earth are obvious. If the Earth was truly weak, it could have collapsed already due to the unbearing strength from our violence and lack of knowledge. For example, the ability to, hear the, uh, to heal the ozone layer is remarkable from the complex ecosystem. However, the strength of the Earth could be considered just as subjective as the term fragile. Usually, strength is meant to say something can overcome another difficult thing. However, the Earth hasn't overcome everything. The Earth has not fixed climate change, littering, or cooperation. And even though cooperation seems weird to put in a list of, uh, to put in a list of the Earth's strengths, we need to think back to the UU principles. We are part of the interdependent web of everything, as is the Earth. We are part of the Earth, and the Earth is part of us. So any goal we have is a goal the Earth has, and vice versa. So the Earth is strong with an amazing system too strange and interesting to understand, meaning there are small things we can do to accidentally disrupt this balance. And however strong or fragile the Earth is, it isn't a stretch to say that it's currently hurting. The solutions to that are both very simple and very difficult. Switching to cleaner food, for example, is very easy for a motivated or privileged individual but at a societal level, getting enough people to want to do that is almost impossible. The same is true for clean energy, less water waste, and less plastic consumption. Sadly, that means at a surface level, most people not devoting any efforts at all don't prioritize future generations above the present. 
Most people know how to make a difference, and I would encourage you to do as you're able. However, the reason no change is taking place is likely due to the difficulty of straying away from, social, from societal norms. For example, a lot of vegans suffer from many people thinking they are entitled. Although it is a privilege to have the ability to eat in that manner, entitlement is not what sacrificing your variety of food means. Entitlement is not trying to put the health of the earth and society above yourself. And although veganism might not be for you, anything helps. Encourage yourself and others to go away from the standards in society to benefit the future. You likely already know what you can do to help right away. These societal norms isolate people trying to make a change, but they also make it more frustrating for those people. When some decide to give up on the earth, the few who stick around slowly give up more help more hope as well. As less support for the change is gained, it is harder to believe there will actually be any. That means even if you have given up, don't ruin it for others. You can think that change won't be achieved, but don't discourage your peers. Think of Anai from the story. If Kalawati had given up, Anai would have too. Their family would have stopped because Kalawati was an activist that cared and encouraged, but most of all, she believed. You shouldn't ruin it for the Kalawatis or Anais of the world. Please encourage others to try their best as you do too. Our earth should be valued very highly, especially as it gets older. Even though in the grand scheme of our universe, our actions have little to no effect on anything, the, local, the more localized importance of our earth is the most important thing we know. The earth is fragile with its delicate system, but very strong for the unique functions it has and the unique ways it repairs itself. Since the earth is so significant to us, you should try your best to do at least something, even if you're considered unnormal for that. Because after all, fragile, strong, and normal are all terms that are very subjective and inaccurate and used loosely due to their subjectivity. So please think about what the earth means to you and what you mean to the earth. Thank you. It is such an honor to be sharing this space this morning with Sawyer, Gavin, and Elle, and also with Birch, and more than even today, working with this beautiful youth group um, to plan this service, and with Birch hurting us all and helping make it happen, it has been a beautiful experience. I'm so grateful to all of you. You're beautiful. We are living at the dawn of a new age, for 11,500 years since the end of the last ice age, we have dwelt in various stages of what geologists call the Holocene Epoch of the Quaternary Period of the Cenozoic Era. And I'm sure, like me, you track this very carefully every day. <laughs> the Holocene didn't last long, just 11,000 years or so, and the epoch just before it, the Pleistocene, lasted for 2 million years. Before that, earlier epochs, like the Eocene or the Upper or Lower Cretaceous, they lasted more than 20 million years. And this is all still recent history. But scientists are saying now that this very brief Holocene, where we have almost always dwelt, may be just about done. And there's something else. Other eras always 
have been ushered in by cataclysms, asteroids from outer space wiping out the dinosaurs and shifting every earthbound balance, or glaciations, mass extinctions, all bringing this irreversible change to the geology, the chemistry, the biology of the planet. But this change now, which charts a new course, or could, for at least the next 10 million years, this shift, for the first time ever, has been caused by human activity. We're standing at the dawn of a new age, and it's not a bright morning if you look at it through human eyes, any more than the dawn of the post-asteroid age was a good day for dinosaurs. 75% of all species on the Earth vanished in that most recent great extinction. We're living on the edge of what global scientists call the Anthropocene. It's named for our own selves, a dubious honor reserved till now for the forces of mythical proportion, cosmic godlike forces. There's some debate over when all this started. Some say the proper threshold would be about 1800, the start of the Industrial Revolution. But there is no question that the acceleration of the last 50 years compares in scale to the impacts of the asteroids and the ice ages. 50 years can't even be measured on a geologic timeline. It can be measured on a calendar, though. Next Saturday, April 22nd, marks the 53rd anniversary of Earth Day. And so I'm thinking all this week about the activists who started it in 1970 who are in their 80s and 90s now. And I'm thinking also, and maybe more, of people like Greta Thunberg, who at age 20 is in her second decade already of activism on the global stage. In one famous speech given when she was still young, just 16, to the British Parliament, she answered adult critics who were taunting her, saying student climate strikers had no real solutions for climate change. Who did she think she was? And she said in response, how should we children have a solution? How do you solve the greatest crisis humanity has ever faced? How do you solve a war? Avoiding climate breakdown will require of us, each of us, she said, all of us, cathedral thinking. We must lay the foundation now, even though we may not know exactly how to build the ceiling. And she was saying, we have to lay the foundations of justice and peace, even if we can't yet figure out the ceiling and the plumbing and the roof, to plant the seeds of trees whose bountiful shade we're not going to live to see, because we know someone will. It is in no way our job or our right to give up on this too soon. Cathedral thinking seems so childish, right? So impulsive. It's how toddlers play with blocks with no real strategic plan, no long-term global economic forecasts, no guaranteed deliverables. Just this wild vision and a wild will to begin. Greta Thunberg was telling us the only thing more childish and selfish and more immoral, more unforgivable and dangerous would be not to start at all. As Gavin told us just now, it matters that you just start someplace. Start where you can. 
Greta Thunberg went on, people will always tell me and the other millions of school strikers that we should be proud of ourselves for what we have accomplished. But you, we have not taken to the streets for you to take selfies with us and tell us you admire us. We children are doing this to wake you adults up and start acting as you should in a crisis. Don't honor us, she said. Don't pat our heads and sigh with pride and admiration for the courage of the young. Don't say with relief, I'm glad this is in their hands now. Don't abdicate. The student climate strikers, the marches, they are not meant to alter CO2 emissions, not directly. They're meant brilliantly to alter us, the adults in the room, the adults in the world, to move us and shake us and shatter us and annoy us and outrage us, rattle us awake. And our job, the job of the people who currently hold all the power, all the money, all the votes, all the cards, the so-called grown-ups, is to act our age and to act as if we're not asleep to act as if we believe in the future, which is not some far-off fairyland, but just a step beyond. It's just a breath beyond this moment. Take a single breath, and the words I just spoke are in the past. This is the future now. And to act as if we cherish it, to believe in it, to understand that nothing else could possibly make sense of our mortal lives in the present except their relationship to the future, because that's true. That's always true. More than the warming of the planet, I would think that what must terrify children most right now and youth terrify them and bewilder them more than climate change is the resignation of adults, and especially the intractable, paralyzed, indulgent despair of so-called progressive adults whining about the end of democracy and the end of the world, wringing their hands, wringing our hands, as if nothing can be done and our work is over. We did that already. We're done. So when did we lose our ferocity and our fierce hope and our curiosity and imagination about what's possible? And when did anybody decide that simply because the struggle is hard, it's okay to check out now? That is not what our elders taught us. It's not how we were raised. When did we decide, when do we ever get to, that the changes required in our lives are just too daunting, too inconvenient? When do we get to say our own grief is just so shattering, our fear of failure so shaming, and the way forward so inscrutable that we're just not going to fight anymore? Who gets to say when the end of history begins? Surely, that responsibility, that right, falls not to the oldest people in the room, in the house, but to the youngest ones. You are not ob obligated to complete the work, says the ancient Jewish text, but neither do you ever have the right to lay it down. The philosopher Michel Foucault writes about curiosity. To me, he says, it, invo it evokes concern. It evokes the care one takes for what exists and could exist, a readiness to find strange and singular what surrounds us, a certain relentlessness to break up our familiarity. And I worry sometimes that we adults of a certain age have become overly familiar, overly cozy with our despair. It's a habit we put on 
and it's unseemly. It's out of style, like most of our clothes. It is dangerous. We could choose instead to be more curious and brave. How can we honor our grief, which is real, for what's lost and not coming back? Landscape, watershed, ways of life, tens of thousands of species. How could we honor this unspeakable grief by shaping it toward adaptation? which is what you always do with grief. We know how to do that creatively, with courage, never resignation to new reality. Why would we not do it? The earth is so fragile, and it is also powerfully strong and resilient, endlessly evolving. Our hope is so fragile, and we can choose to make it strong and powerful and resilient. I know somebody who believes that trees are sentient beings. He believes absolutely that trees hold the same inherent dignity and worthiness as he himself or you or I. He greets them every day when he goes walking, just as he greets the people on the street and our letter carrier and neighbors and dogs and strangers, all the same. He calls them by their names in his own inscrutable language. He's been doing it all his life, since he was really young, thinking this way, feeling this way. He likes the little trees, the young saplings that are his peers, and he reveres the older ones, the elders. He trusts them. He's humble in their presence, a little shy. He would be appalled. He would not know what to make of it if I said, they're expendable. If I said, these are just natural resources, have at it. His sense of how the whole world works would come unraveled. Everything he knows of love and right relation. He believes we're all related. This is the theology he came in with when he first showed up. I grew up this way myself. Maybe you did too. With the writer Alice Walker, if he could read, he would say, if he could talk, I knew that if I cut a tree my own arm would bleed. Like all science and all politics, climate science and climate politics have to be rooted first in devotion, in reverence, which in classical philosophy meant not anything pious at all. Reverence is the rightful sense of one's own rightful place in relation to everybody else a sense of proportion and perspective that makes you so curious about the other person or species, the other entity, the lake, the land, the river, the tree, that you can't help paying attention to it and learning all about it. It's this intimate devotion that looks a lot like love and a lot like respect and a lot like family. A young person I know thinks the trees in the park near us are his relatives. And I am in no position to dissuade him because this is a religion, this is a philosophy, this is an ethics, a global politics, this is science that will guide him and sustain him for the next nine decades, maybe 10. I'm in no position to say when the end of his world begins, his bright, broken, complicated, shimmering, beautiful world. I am on the way out. And he's just coming in. Sally McFaig, a Christian theologian, says it's time for an ecological reformation. 
Protestant Reformation, Vatican II, brought the importance of the human individual to the fore. But our current version of this model, a market model, in which each of us has the right to everything we can get, is killing our planet and making most of its people very poor. North American middle-class religion, she says, has focused on individual well-being, bringing comfort to single believers. It says we're a collection of individuals who have the right to improve our own lives in whatever ways we can. This religion is bankrupt, she says. It relies on our reluctance to disrupt the most comfortable lifestyle that any people on earth have ever enjoyed. She's talking to liberal Christians and to us. A new religion for this moment, she says, would have just three commandments. Take only your share. Clean up your mess. Keep the house in good repair. Rules that most toddlers I know learn in preschool. So I wonder what this looks like for our movement, whether we might reclaim or recycle old virtues for a new age, principles that are not prioritized always in the freewheeling, do-whatever-you-want individualism of Unitarianism, an identity that I really think is as toxic in this moment as any old creed was before. What if instead of freedom, autonomy, selfhood, we centered now selfishness, sacrifice, simplicity, sufficiency, community, collaboration, forbearance, proportion, reverence, humility, restraint? There's a rigorous beauty, a strange freedom in the discipline and practice of humble limitation. There's beauty in it. There's joy in it even love and hope in it. Beauty, joy, love, hope, that is a religion for the Anthropocene, which is the only world we know. As Gavin said, think about what the earth means to you and what you mean to the earth. It is fragile. It's powerfully strong. Our hope and our confidence flicker, but our love is resilient and strong. And our calling while we live is simple. Stay awake, act your age.